This morning, John 6, starting in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why are you discouraged? That we are discouraged from time to time, is unavoidable. It's a cursed and sin-stained world. But how often do we stop to carefully consider the cause of that discouragement? In Psalm 42, David asks a remarkable question. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me. What casts down your soul? Jesus' followers are getting discouraged. It's true of the twelve to some extent, but it really describes the crowds of Jesus' followers we've been reading about in the last several stories. They aren't disciples in the sense of being believers, but they are disciples in the sense of physically following him from place to place. It's strange to think about, but Jesus had a lot of unbelieving disciples and still has them. Many then followed him out of curiosity. Many then and now are those who claim that Jesus was this great prophet whose teaching deserved to be honored and revered And yet all kinds of disciples eventually stop following Jesus because they do not believe. Just as not all Israel was true Israel, not all disciples are true disciples. In chapter 8, Jesus will say, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He acknowledges that anyone can follow Jesus. But as another pastor puts it, Only those who continue in his word are truly his disciples. Continuing in his word, which he says is impossible in the flesh, is at times emotionally difficult, even in the spirit. In response to Jesus' recent teaching, many disciples are becoming discouraged. And the why matters. It matters for our discouragement, too, Am I discouraged by God's providence 
a temporary response to difficult circumstances? Or am I discouraged by God? Like David, we need to ask, why are you cast down, O my soul? And only then can the light of truth shine on our feelings and lead us to a godly response. The crowds, verse 60, find Jesus' words hard. That word doesn't mean difficult to understand, though that was apparently also true. It means offensive or rude or harsh. It's the kind of words we hear and respond, I don't want to hear this, even if it's true. Now, that's no surprise. He's showing them their spiritual helplessness, and in our flesh, no one wants to hear that. We don't want to admit that we're utterly dependent on God. We don't want our priorities challenged. In the flesh, we don't want hard teaching. A similar struggle remains even after we're given saving faith. We don't want others to tell us about our sin. We don't want to be confronted with our selfishness. We don't want to be asked to apologize or to repent and truthfully We don't even want others to apologize because that requires us to forgive and to be reconciled. The various ways in which Jesus' teachings are hard reveal underlying reasons for the disciples' discouragement. They're discouraged by God, not just by his providence, which we all are from time to time, but by his word and his will. This is why they grumble to one another. And because he is the one who knows all men's hearts, verse 61 tells us that he knows what they're thinking and saying. The conflict is about truth, truth about God. Jesus does not shy away from the conflict. He exposes the underlying objections, what really bugs these disciples about God. He doesn't take back anything he said or make it easier to accept. He goes down the list of things that discourage them about God and makes no apologies because none need to be made. This morning we'll consider four causes of discouragement revealed in this interaction. And we'll see where such discouragement leads. And along the way, consider how we should evaluate our own discouragement to arrive at a better outcome than these faithless followers. First cause, Jesus' agenda conflicts with mine. Some in John 6 are discouraged because Jesus' plans aren't their plans. They're not what they want. Back in verses 14 and 15, we saw that the people wanted a political liberator. In verse 26 and again in 30 and 31 through Moses, Jesus continues to point out that their priorities are still earthly rather than spiritual. This has been a repeating conversation in John. Mary wants respectability and avoidance of embarrassment at the wedding feast, but Jesus came to do his father's will. The religious rulers want Jesus to comply with their Sabbath policies. Jesus came to do his father's will. The crowds want to manipulate his miraculous powers for their own purpose. Jesus came to do his father's will. I have a friend who, as I'm telling someone else exactly what they should do, will often joke, Paul loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. 
We all have plans for ourselves and for others. We all have our perspective on what's best and what is most important. Those desires can align with Christ's will. That's how we live Christ-like lives, aligning our plans with his. But our desires and plans can also be indifferent toward Christ's. And that will reveal a source of conflict and discouragement when the two come into disagreement. It's easy, even for disciples, to want what we want. And we'll spiritualize it. We will co-opt Bible verses and spiritual language and claims of good intentions to advocate for our plans. We'll justify our pursuit of our own priorities until we're blue in the face. But how do we respond when our plans and God's are irreconcilable? What do we do when Christ's work and will does not align with our own? In this crowd, many grumbled. I don't want to hear this. Jesus answers, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And how did they respond? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's because, you see, it's not just God's plans that discourage faithless followers. In the flesh, we fool ourselves into thinking that there can be some compromise or some brokered deal between God's plans and our own. But Jesus highlights the second cause for offense. God's sovereignty conflicts with our own. He says plainly that it's only his Father's will which can ever be accomplished, and that starts with salvation itself. Another pastor described it this way, they were unprepared to relinquish their own sovereign authority and therefore could not take the first step of genuine faith. What Jesus just told them in 41 through 46 was that the only way of salvation is to be taught by God as he draws us by irresistible grace to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this conflicts with the salvation by my work schemes that men develop and in which many trust. It conflicts with our spirit of independence and personal sovereignty. There can't be two sovereigns over the same object. Either I am sovereign over my life and salvation, or God is, but not both. And Jesus unequivocally says it's the latter. I am an active participant in my salvation. I take hold of faith in Christ. I respond in thought, word, and deed. But Jesus says plainly, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Christ. And this is a message many do not want to accept. There once was a rich young man confident in his self-righteousness. He was a good guy. He did good things. And he once went to Jesus and asked Jesus to affirm his approach to salvation. Jesus said, sell all that you have and follow me. And what does the scripture say? the young man went away sorrowful. He was discouraged by God. Like many, he wanted salvation on his own terms, and Jesus warns that those terms will never save. 
But for some, self-sovereignty is so important. In the flesh, self-sovereignty is so important that it will cause many to walk away from Christ because they cannot accept this hard teaching. Third cause, Jesus' exclusivity conflicts with the world. The claims Jesus makes about himself trouble and discourage many followers as he claims to be the only way to God. Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In this crowd, the specific trouble was that Jesus claimed to be greater than Moses and equal with God. They'll accept Jesus as a prophet, as a wise teacher, as a great moral example, but not as who he says he is. In the 1970s musical, Jesus Christ Superstar, Judas has a song where he laments how Jesus ruined the good thing they had going simply by making claims of divinity. The people were ready to embrace a superstar Messiah and King, but they were not ready for a Savior who claimed equality with God. Today, faithless disciples will affirm everything about Jesus except what Jesus says is central to his identity. That he, first and foremost, is the second person of the Trinity who was with God in the beginning and whom himself is God. And if we don't accept that, Jesus himself tells us nothing else we say about him matters. That exclusivity has discouraged many over the years. He offends Gentiles by saying that he alone is the way to salvation. He offends Jews by saying they cannot know his father except through him. People then and now want desperately to believe that there are ways to God around Jesus or adjacent to Jesus or simply using other names than Jesus and other means than his word. And when they hear these hard teachings of the Lord, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved, they, like the rich young ruler, go away sad. They're discouraged by God. And that's at the core of the fourth cause. God's word and will offend our sensibilities. God's word and will are out of step with worldly priorities and societal norms. Here it's the graphic extension of the bread metaphor. Eating flesh and drinking blood weren't just gross to think about. If taken literally, they represent an assault on Jewish dietary and purification laws. And when challenged about this, Jesus takes it up a notch. Verse 61, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? There's an illusion here that we see only with the benefit of hindsight. The earthly ascension that is required for Jesus' heavenly ascension is when his body and blood are lifted up on a cross. He's saying, if you think the language about body and blood is offensive, wait till you see what I do with my body and blood, you will be horrified. One scholar observes, How men and women respond to this supreme scandal determines their destiny. What God has done and will do in the working out of his sovereign purposes can be deeply offensive to the watching world. 
seeing God's plans realized, many walk away in discouragement. Only those who eat my flesh and drink my blood is really just the tip of the iceberg. A shameful and humiliating death on the cross make that analogy look tame by comparison. So after this, many of his disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. They can't keep following because they can't accept his word and his will. The world hates God and the flesh hates spirit. People claim to want Jesus, but his word and will for salvation are an offense to them. They claim to honor Christ, but they hate the word which reveals Christ's likeness. What scripture says about holiness, about forgiveness, about obedience, about sexuality and gender, about men and women's roles, scripture offends and discourages many who claim otherwise to want to follow Jesus. His word and will are a constant offense to selfish desires and to cultural norms and to unbiblical ideologies. And when any of these four conflicts are the cause of our discouragement, we are, without a change of heart, going to walk away sad from Christ. There's no way around it. Because God does not change. If we are in conflict with him, either we change by faith or we leave in discouragement. If we're still living by our own agenda, thinking that we've got this life under control and all figured out, if God would just get in line with our plans, then living every day as God's agenda is worked out will discourage us. Jesus said he is eternally fixed on the Father's will. Anything that we pursue outside of that, we have to pursue outside from his encouragement and aid. And what could be more discouraging than going through life every day without the aid and comfort of Christ? If we demand personal sovereignty, we can never rest in the comfort and certain hope of God's sovereignty. We may declare Christ as Lord, but we're daily fighting for absolute control of our lives and the futures. And the inevitable result is we will be as discouraged as the crowds. One scholar captured it well. He said what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. We also cannot deny Christ his rightful place as the only savior of the world. Accepting other paths necessarily denies the path of Christ. He's not a way, a sliver of truth, or one path to life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It may be temporarily discouraging when we have to choose Christ and therefore lose the world. But if that discouragement, like these followers, causes us to choose the world We have lost Christ. And when we are offended by his word and his will, we need to recognize that the problem is not there but with us. We aren't seeing the beauty of God's holiness. We love the world too much. We're not offended deeply enough by sin. When God's revelation offends us, the only way to see things rightly is more of God. Not less. 
another pastor was preaching this, and he told his congregation that you cannot feed on Christ without feeding on Christ's words. Truly believing Jesus cannot be separated from truly believing his words. And that's true even when the words are hard, when they're not what the world wants to hear. And it's true when his will is hard and when it's the last thing we wanted to experience. Which of these causes are at work in your discouragement? Verse 63 said, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. When we're discouraged, we have to pray for the eyes of the spirit. We have to pray that by the Spirit we would understand what's happening in light of God's Word. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. To process our discouragement rightly, we need God's words to wash over our thinking. When I'm discouraged, I have to ask, what am I not understanding? What am I forgetting? Circumstances can certainly be discouraging. But by the word of God, that discouragement can be changed even when the circumstances cannot. The prophet Jeremiah said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. You don't believe me? Look at this very passage. Look to Jesus. What's happening right now in his life? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't care who you are, that's not a good day. Even the twelve are tempted by this discouragement, so much so that he asked them, do you want to go away as well? Oh, and though by his power eleven will remain, he acknowledges here that one of them is a devil. In addition to being rejected by the crowds, Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed by one closest to him. And he says that he will ascend. He knows that that's not first to heaven, but first to a cross, because some of these very people will put him there. Brutal circumstances. So how does he avoid discouragement? It's the reverse of the four things we've already discussed. He's fixed on the Father's agenda. He knows that his Father is all good and all powerful. He delights in the Father's sovereignty. He knows that he has nothing to fear. He can look at all of these difficult circumstances, as in verse 65, for example, and he can connect them to the Father's good purposes to save his people. Also, Jesus knows that he is the perfect revelation of God, the Father's word and will made flesh. And so he doesn't fear the approval of man because he is fully delighted in the approval of of God. He can, this is tough to say, it's weird. He can be himself perfectly Christ like with all the offense that causes the world. Regardless of what the world thinks, he is free to be himself, to be utterly Christ like because he delights in the glory of the Father. And he is entirely convinced 
and he has an eternity of experience to prove it. That holiness is the path to joy. Jesus doesn't ask his disciples if they want to leave out of discouragement or frustration. He asks them for their sake. He asks them, why are your souls cast down? What do they believe? Should they walk away? Or should they hold more tightly to God's revelation in Christ? By faith, Peter knows, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else will we go? Peter's answer is what godliness in the face of discouragement looks like. It doesn't look like much, does it? But it's perfect. Peter doesn't understand everything that's happening. Peter's sad doesn't go away in a moment. Peter doesn't even understand yet everything that Jesus has been teaching. We'll see that more and more. And to some extent, Peter understands why the others walked away. These are hard words. But by faith, he understood one thing that they didn't. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. To be taught by God is not some magic wand to ultimate understanding. It's not some fast track to permanent existential peace. But it is quite enough to convince us to put our trust in him. What are you going to do about your discouragement? Many walk away sorrowful, publicly or in secret, because it gets too hard. And I tell you, if you insist on your own will, rely on your own strength, and crave the approval of the world, it will happen. But it doesn't have to. Abiding with Christ doesn't require superhuman strength on your part. It doesn't require profound theological prowess. Abiding with Christ requires trusting God. Exercising the faith that he gives. Evaluating everything that we experience and think by the light of his word. Going there to that word in faith. Not to ourselves, not to the culture. Going to his word in faith is the only way we find a path forward from even great discouragement. So when you're asked, oh, my soul, why are you cast down? Answer, abide in Christ. It may not change your circumstances, but it will change you.